So that's Genesis 2, starting at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, do turn back to Genesis chapter 2, and you'll see on the reverse of the notice sheet an outline for we'll, we'll be heading this afternoon. And on the top of that, you'll see these words, being with one person forever. I'm not sure that's natural. Now, those were, that was a striking quote in big letters on the front cover of last week's Sunday Times magazine, being with the one person forever. I'm not sure that's natural. I wonder, what do you think about that? Do you sympathize? Is that right? I guess we might respond by asking a question, what do you mean by natural? What are you proposing instead? And so on. But put simply, the question is, what do we to think? What are we to make of marriage today? And that quote reflects what many in our society might think, that marriage is out of date or unrealistic, unnecessary, impractical, maybe even oppressive. And then along with that then, maybe either implicitly they won't say it, or maybe they will. The Bible's view of marriage is, well, ridiculed and mocked, it's undermined and then dismissed. Now, of course, there are those out there who are much more positive about marriage. They want to get married, they do get married. But still, marriage is what they decide marriage is going to be. Well, this afternoon, the aim is that we will be persuaded that marriage in the Bible is thrilling for all of us, whether in our earthly experience we are single or married, that ultimately marriage is what we were all created for and very much for our good, that the experience of marriage will delight us forever. Well, marriage is the focus of these verses we're looking at this afternoon as we continue our series in this opening chapters of Genesis. But as we look at these verses, we'll have to remember what we've heard so far. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the sixth day was when people were made. 
chapter 1, verse 26. Let us make man, humanity. And humanity, we saw, stands out from the rest of creation. Remember, verse 26 again. We were created in God's image. And the rest of that verse draws out the implications in terms particularly of having dominion over other creatures and so to rule the earth under God. And then man created in the image of God, male and female. Chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So male and female, created by God like that from the beginning. This God-given, built-in, fundamental difference between the sexes. And we saw this created, <clears throat> excuse me, humanity has a particular responsibility to exercise, which is why God created us. Verse 28 of chapter 1, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And then chapter 1 ends that all this is very good. And then as we began to see last week, Genesis 2 then gives us, if you like, another look at God's creative activity from another angle. Last week we focused on the work that God has given us as humanity to do, the responsibilities. We saw that in verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So here's this stunning, beautiful, fruitful garden. And here was the place for humanity to start, to get to work on this great task that God has given us to fill the earth and to subdue it. But then into today's passage, there's a surprise as we look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, well, actually, before we get to the surprise, just a reminder of the significance of this name, which we saw last week, the Lord God, Lord in capital letters. Do you remember? It is, if you like, God's personal name, the Lord God. He's introducing himself with a view to relationship with his people. So a reminder to us again, as we read through this chapter, here is a God who wants to be known. And God has made us in his image wonderfully with a capacity to do that. Okay, now, verse 18, there is a surprise in this verse. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So it's striking as you read it, because end of chapter one, we left it all very good. Everything fit for purpose, ready to go. But now on this, if you like, second telling of the creation account, we are joining in at this point where everything we are told is not good. And the issue is, man is alone. So if it's not good, then what is needed? Well, we might think a companion. Well, yes, but having read Genesis 1 and 2, that's not what's front and centre at this point. You could ask the question, yes, companionship, but to what end or purpose? Well, we're kind of told in the rest of the verse, the solution is to have a helper. So to help with what? Well, that we can answer because we've seen that from Genesis 1 and 2 so far. Man needs help with this God-given work of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. To do that as man alone is, well, difficult and in some ways impossible. Help is needed. 
And then at which point, if you like, there's almost another surprise in this account as we read through. Do you remember back in Genesis 1, as soon as God said, let there be, and there was, almost instantaneously, it seemed. But here, the Lord God says he will make a suitable helper for the man. But that's not what happens, at least not straight away. First, verse 19. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Well, did you notice the repetition, naming? That happens both at the end of verse 19 and into verse 20. And here's an example of the man exercising his rule and dominion over the other living creatures. Adam is working as God intended. But it's still not all good. There is still something lacking. Now, did you know the amount of DNA, apparently, we have in common with a banana is 60%? Or with an animal, it is even higher. Apparently, with a chimpanzee, it's 96%. Now, last week, I talked about the water cycle, and afterwards, everyone came to talk to me about that, as if I, as if I knew anything else to say. Same on DNA. I know no more than that. Where's Grace? Is Grace here? Grace, our geneticist, is here. Go and ask Grace about it. She can tell you why we share 96% of our DNA with a chimpanzee. That's not really that surprising, is it? We are both living creatures with functions that are very alike in many ways. But you could say it's that key 4% that makes the difference, or more to the point. One of those was created in the image of God. So wild animals and birds, or even domesticated animals, which are kind of in the center of verses 19 and 20, your favorite family pet, I don't know, Fido the dog, or Tiddles the cat, they are not suitable helpers for the man. And so we read on verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now you're talking, is what Adam says in that verse. He's named all the animals. He's realized none of them will do the job. What was needed was woman. And here she is before him. So what have we learned so far just from the passage about woman? Well, as we've seen, this is the helper that he needs. Now, helper does not mean inferior. How could it? In the rest of the Bible, God himself is often described as his people's helper. And there's another telling phrase. Did you notice the repetition in verses 18 and 20? Both times the helper is described as fit for him. Or actually, literally, it's like opposite him. It's kind of a, a made-up word almost to tell us the woman is like the man. Well, that makes sense. We saw in chapter one, both in God's image, both therefore equal, very much so, in value and worth. And yet opposite, that is different, fundamentally. So alike, equal, and yet different, opposite, complementary 
we could say. But when Adam sees the woman, he does burst into poetry, verse 23, and he says, at last, the animals simply wouldn't do, this is the one. And maybe poetry to express his delight and even attraction to what he sees. But fundamentally, and above all, this now is the provision from God so that humanity, which is male and female, could work together as equal yet complementary to serve the Lord, to work the garden, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And then God made man and woman from the beginning to work together in one particular way, which is marriage. So now we're going to see marriage instituted, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This sentence, this statement is so vitally important. The rest of the Bible assumes it and builds on it. Here we are shown that marriage is no human invention of society. It comes from God the creator. He built it into creation right from the beginning for those he had created in his image. So what is this marriage? So first we're shown the nature of marriage. Well, verse 24 makes it plain, the essential characteristics of marriage. For a start, it's between one man and one woman. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Male and female, as created by God, as such, coming together in marriage. Without a male and a female, there simply is no marriage. Next, marriage is a public commitment. As we read, the man leaves his father and mother and instead holds fast from now on to his wife. That is, primary loyalties and commitments have changed from parents now towards spouse. The man and wife become this one flesh, a newly recognized public entity. And then we see marriage is to be a lasting arrangement. We're told the man shall hold fast to his wife. It's a very strong word, hold fast to his wife. So clearly marriage is not simply a good idea for as long as it feels like it's working. Marriage is not for a particular stage of life. If entered into, then this holding fast is to be permanent. Till death do us part. And that phrase, one flesh, not only points to the public nature of this new relationship and marriage, but it also tells us the context in which God's gift of sex is to be enjoyed. Sex is to be between a man and a woman in the context of this lifelong public marriage union. And now with that in place, we can say all is very good. Everything God institutes for his people in Genesis 1 and 2 is with a view to bless them, to bless those he has made in his image. And this is no exception. Marriage, as defined by God, is a blessing to be recognized, honored, and upheld by all. So that's the nature of marriage. We haven't quite yet addressed the question, what is the purpose of marriage? And we can ask, ask this question now because we've read Genesis 1 and 2. 
we've seen the big picture, why humanity was created to know the Lord and to do this work he has entrusted to us, to fill the earth and to rule over it. And marriage here is to that end. Male and female coming together to know the Lord together, then to work together to fill the earth as equals and yet with complementarity. The man created first, we're then told, weren't we, he names the woman, all pointing us to the responsibility the man has to lead the woman. And the woman is to be his helper in this work. So you might say, what about companionship? Now, of course, there is a place, a God-given place for companionship and for love within a marriage. And yet, Genesis 1 and 2 has shown us not as an end in itself. That is, marriage is then to have this outward focus as every one of God's people are to have. So a marriage will focus first on the Lord and knowing him, and then it will overflow and look to others. A marriage simply focused in on itself will be far from healthy. But a marriage God's way, a strong marriage, yes, a loving family unit delighting in each other, but then together looking beyond itself, wanting to serve the Lord and to fill the earth with his glory. So before we go on, we can answer one common question. If this is the purpose of marriage, then it does show us, doesn't it, who it is that a believer should marry. Because if marriage is to have as a focus, as husband and wife together, knowing the Lord, working together in his service to fill the earth for his glory, then my spouse, should I have opportunity to pursue one, will likewise need to be someone who knows the Lord and is wanting and willing to join with me in serving him and filling the earth with his glory. The Apostle Paul summed it up in one of his letters by saying, quite simply, singles are free to marry in the Lord. So we've considered the nature of marriage and the purpose of marriage. The focus has been so far particularly human marriages. You might think, well, why do you need to say that, human marriages? Well, that's because they are part of a much bigger picture, as we're about to see. We need to look at marriage fulfilled. So as we read these first couple of chapters of Genesis, what are we to make of this institution that God has set up, that of marriage? And then as we ponder it, we begin to see there's more to marriage than we might have realized in God's plan. So yes, there's a human arrangement, we might say, conducive to filling the earth according to God's plan. But there are also pointers, even within Genesis, to more. Well, let's pick some out. So do you remember the first week of creation week of Genesis 1? It all headed towards that seventh day of rest, a holy set-apart day, a day of blessing. And if Genesis 2 is a second look at creation, we might say, well, where does this day lead? And it leads to, well, marriage. So naturally, as we read, we say, well, is rest and marriage, well, are they connected? Don't forget as well, Genesis 2 is where the writer has introduced to us this Lord God name of God, wanting us to think of God in terms of relationship between him and his people. And then also Genesis 2, we mentioned it very briefly last week, began by speaking of the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the rest of 
Genesis, generations means family generations going down the generations. But what could it mean here for heaven and earth to seemingly come together leading to generations, that is, offspring? Well, pointers there, but today we can see very clearly where all this was pointing because we are told marriage is fulfilled ultimately in Christ and the church. So this key verse, Genesis 2 verse 24, where God institutes marriage is quoted explicitly at least four times in the New Testament. Jesus says it, and so does the Apostle Paul. We heard it in our reading earlier from Ephesians. No need to look it up now, but after quoting that verse, Paul says this. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That Paul says, is what Genesis 2, 24 is about, ultimately, Christ and the church. So God created humanity, as we've seen in Genesis, for us to experience the blessing of knowing him. But as we're going to consider next week, what did we do? We turned away. We turned away from the Lord God and what he said. And everything God had said to us through Genesis was for humanity's good, for our good, for the good of the world. And even we today, as we read what that speaks of, know that we have fallen short. Now, in particular, I'm well aware as I give this talk that each of us knows that we've got sex and relationships wrong in different ways. We may well be acutely aware of this. We may even ask, how could God ever have me back? Surely I have blown it for good. Well, we do deserve to be left to ourselves forever. And yet as we read on from Genesis 1 and 2, we begin to see the story of the Bible is of God pursuing his bride. God is well aware of her shocking behavior. That is our thoughts and words and actions. You read on in the Bible, God keeps on pursuing again and again. It becomes clear that the cost, so to speak, for God to win his bride is going to be so great. But sure enough, Christ came and went to that death on the cross where he gave himself up for her. And the result is that whatever our past, there is full and free forgiveness for any who will come to Christ. In Christ, we find the love, the love that we were made for, the love that we were created to enjoy and to be satisfied by it forever. We get to the end of the Bible and the book of Revelation describes for us the wedding celebration to end all wedding celebrations, the marriage supper of the Lamb, of the Lord Jesus himself. That day is coming. And the bride, well, that will be us. And on that day, whatever our past, on that day we will be ready because Jesus will have made us ready. And so on that day, the bride will come adorned for her husband. And we're told in this marriage, there will be no more tears ever, but blessing and rest as God chooses to dwell with his people for good. 
Well, as we begin to see this, as we realize this was God's plan from the very beginning, as we now await this glorious ultimate wedding day, now we see human marriages were instituted to point towards that ultimate marriage. Human marriages were to be, are to be complementary, that is male and female, because they point to this coming together of heaven and earth, of God and his people. Human marriages are to be formed by public lasting promises because they point us to the public promises that the faithful God has made to us, that he will forgive us, he will keep us, he will give us himself that we would enjoy relationship with him. God will keep those promises in Christ into eternity. So we see marriage is fulfilled in Christ and the church. And we also see marriage is fulfilled in today's church. Now remember by church we mean people, particularly Christians, believers in Jesus. So like us here at St. Helens, here at the 4pm, we are the fulfillment of this marriage plan that we see in Genesis 2 for Christ and the church. One day we'll experience it in full, at that great marriage supper of the Lamb. But as we look forward to to that, that ultimate marriage will shape the way that we live now. It'll have implications for those of us who are married in human marriages, that we will honour human marriages, in particular, our own human marriage. Married people will take those promises that they have made very seriously. They will not allow that commitment to be threatened. And with that then, those who are married will seek to pattern their marriage on that ultimate marriage. We heard it earlier in Ephesians 5 from Paul when he said to the husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Let each one of you love his wife as himself. And then to the wives, he said, as the church submits to Christ, Submit to your husbands. Let the wives see to it that they respect their husbands. And then still with human marriage. Marriage will be about together serving the Lord. And in particular, through that one flesh relationship, they will seek to be fruitful in terms of physically producing more people. Now, in a fallen and broken world, that won't always be possible. And yet the expectation the Bible sets from Genesis 2 onwards, or 1 onwards, is that in time marriages will lead to this sort of multiplication. And as and when children come, the married couple's aim will not then be to pursue their own ambitions through their children. How devastating it is when that happens. But rather that as parents do all they can to help their offspring likewise to know and to serve the Lord. There'll be implications too for those who are single, humanly speaking. Likewise, single people are to honour human marriage, which single people do as they live faithfully according to the pattern God has established. But there's more for all of us. Where does this pattern of marriage established in Genesis 1 and 2 find fulfillment today. So yes, of course, it has something to say to human marriages and singleness in an obvious sense. 
But it surely, if marriage is about Christ and the church, there must be fulfillment in the church of God's people. That is all of us in the church, that is those of us believing and trusting in Christ. So we have entered into, begun this remarkable relationship, ultimate relationship for which we were made. We have experienced Christ's love and love him in return. And then God's desire for his bride, for his people, is then that we will give and receive this love among one another. So yes, for those who are married, between each of them, but also more generally, that for all of us, the church of God's people is to be this family where friendship, companionship, and love is to be experienced. No doubt we've all had experience of when that didn't happen as it should. But therefore the challenge is for all of us to be asking ourselves, how can I better commit to love and serve God's people, in particular in the congregation here where the Lord has placed me, so that we become more like this? What will motivate us is our marriage relationship with the Lord Jesus. We've known such love and now we are to share it. It'll be very challenging and costly, but wonderful. It's amazing as you go through the New Testament, which does speak much of love. Yes, there's to be love within the human marriage relationship. Far more, Jesus and the New Testament speaks of, as we have been loved by God, so we are to love one another within the church. But again, let's think of the bigger picture. As we seek to do that, it is not saying we are to pursue an inwardly focused love, which would be a not-so-holy huddle. Again, as a love within a human marriage should flow outwards, as it is with the church. As we love one another deeply with God's love, that love should then overflow into all the world. And again, we see this as we look at the big picture of the Bible. So Genesis 1. God's people, I mean, at that point, God's people were all of humanity. They were instructed, weren't they, by God, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. But as you know, we rebelled. We chose not to do that. We pursued our own self-serving agenda instead. But that commission from God still remained. Although from then on, of course, it has to take into account the changed state of our world. And so it is at the end of Matthew 28, God's people, then believers in Jesus Christ, they are instructed by the risen Jesus himself, go and make disciples of all nations. So that is the task now for God's bride, for the church. So for married couples, that will include seeking to raise children who know and obey Jesus. But for all of us, as we love each other, we are then to look outwards, to think, how can we work together? Because, of course, we want others to share with us in knowing this love of Christ, which is revealed in the gospel. And then as we do this, with God's help, it will lead in God's kindness to fruitfulness and multiplication and even, we might say, offspring. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? He, of course, never married. He never had children. Yet he had many sons and daughters. Being with one person forever, I'm not sure that's natural. 
Well, the Bible shows us we were created by God to be with him, to enjoy relationship with him forever. Human marriage was then a gift of God instituted at creation designed to point everyone towards this ultimate marriage, to reflect it for male and female then to be able to work together to fill the earth with this end in view. And then as we look to Christ, we see God's purposes, his plans for this ultimate marriage. Well, the plans are still very much on. We know Christ has won us for himself at such great cost. The wedding banquet is approaching. To know Christ, to find our deepest fulfillment and satisfaction in him is to experience this thrilling marriage which we were all created to enjoy. I'll lead us in a closing prayer. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Our Father, we thank you that you created us in your image, male and female, that we might experience the delight of knowing you forever. Thank you that that was your plan established from the very beginning. And so we thank you that even when we turned away, you pursued us in Christ, and in so doing, revealed the depths of your love for us. And so now we pray that we, the church, your people, the bride, whether single or married, would work together as you intended for the earth to be filled with those who've heard of the love of Christ and have come to share it themselves. We ask this for your glory. Amen.